Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for exactly 10 years. That's right. This episode marks our 10th anniversary. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. I have a couple of announcements. I think most listeners know we're in the middle of the summer pledge drive. It's going on right now. If you enjoy listening to this station with its unique programming like bird calls and you're listening to it live or later as a podcast, please consider making a financial contribution to the station today. It's easy to contribute by going online at redriverradio.org and click on the red donate box in the upper right-hand corner. Or you can always call 1-800-552-8502 and make your pledge over the telephone. If you enjoy this show and hearing about birds and our natural world, please help out and make your contribution. You can help keep discussions about birds and nature on the air. I have some friends that are in East Texas right now. They're archaeologists, and I wanted to give a shout-out to them. The Texas Archaeological Society is conducting their annual summer field school in Nacogdoches right now, and they would like to invite the public to participate in two ways this Thursday, June 15th. At 9 a.m. this Thursday, there will be a public tour to go see the archaeological site excavations in progress. They will meet at the parking lot out front of the Nacogdoches County Expo Center at 9 a.m. and lead a caravan to the site west of town. The tour will last about two hours. Then they'll also be hosting a free presentation and artifact identification event open to the public that same evening this Thursday downtown at the Nacogdoches County Courthouse Annex at 7 p.m. This is where the lead archaeologist will explain the work being conducted and preliminary results and discoveries at three Spanish mission period sites in Nacogdoches County. The public is encouraged to attend and also can bring along their own artifacts or artifact collections for identification by a team of archaeological experts. So I think that's cool. I want to give a shout out to them. Okay, next we, we recap the conservation tip that we gave the previous month, and it was plant a tree, but not just any tree. And I I listed some trees to stay away from, and I'm sure a lot of people's eyebrows went up, and they're like, what is he talking about? He, He said bad things about planting Chinese tallow and Bradford pears and crepe myrtles and pyracanthus. These are not good for wildlife, and some of them are extremely invasive and aggressively so, like the tallow. So if you lose a tree on your property, look for something that's native, meaning it's indigenous to your area, and it's also site-appropriate, meaning that the conditions of your yard are perfect with the soil type, the available sunlight, and so forth. So 
Um, things I've mentioned were to think about giving native berry giving trees or shrubs like a mulberry or black cherry or deciduous holly. These are all these are all appropriate where I live. They're appropriate for probably the entire listening area. And if you're outside the listening area, do a little homework, figure out what's native and what's site appropriate and what's maybe berry giving, fruit giving for our birds and other wildlife. Um, so do a little research before you plant a tree, but definitely replace a tree if you lose one on your property. Doing it for the birds will help. So since this is our 10th anniversary episode, I, I wanted to give some shout outs um, to those who have helped with this show, including everyone here at Red River Radio Studio in Shreveport, um, all the staff that have helped. Um, and and uh, my wife, Julie Shackelford, she's my talented editor who helps me in many ways behind the scenes with this show. Uh, big thanks to James Childress for the use of his wonderful bird photographs on our website at Bird Calls. And the website, xenocanto.org, that ha- provides all the amazing sound files we use. We couldn't do it um, without them, so thanks to xenocanto.org. I want to thank Beverly Burden with our sister show, What's Bugging You, for not only doing a joint episode with me every April, but for the occasional trading of Tuesdays that she's willing to do to help accommodate my travel and vacation. So huge thanks to Dr. Burden. I'd also like to thank Les Stewart of Nacogdoches. He posts announcements on social media about upcoming shows. Thank you, Les. And um, lastly, I'd like to make a sad mention that my longtime co-host and co-producer of the show, Bill Beckett, who left the show about 18 months ago, he unfortunately passed away this past winter. So uh, we miss you, Bill. So tonight we're profiling the summer tanager. Every episode we pick a different bird to, to profile in that way. You can, if you're learning birds, you just can learn little little nibbles. Every month we just do one instead of bombarding you with 5, 10, 15, or 20 species, which makes your brain turn to mush. So tonight's the summer tanager. In a second, we'll listen to the summer tanager's call notes, then its song. First, here's the call of the summer tanager. It almost sounds like this bird is saying, ticky-tuck, ticky-tuck. And that happens to be one of many colloquial names for this species. Next, let's listen to the song of the ticky-tuck, or summer tanager, and be sure to ignore the background bird song on this track that includes doves, cardinals, and others. So let's listen to the song of the summer tanager. So that song consists of fast and rolling warbles and whistles all bundled tightly together. Let's listen. So that song is very similar to the, the familiar American Robin. The male summer tanager is about the size of a cardinal and is red like a cardinal, yet it lacks the cardinal's crest, heavy red bill, and black mask. 
The female tanager is an all-over spicy mustard color. Neither has spots, streaks, or speckles. An exception might be some of the molting males that return in spring from their wintering grounds wearing a blotchy mix of yellow and red patches all over its body. One old colloquial name that refers to this short-held plumage is the calico warbler. Calico warbler, even though this is a tanager and not a warbler. Summer tanagers eat a variety of food, including insects and fruit. They are also known to frequent natural beehives and hollow trees in order to feast on the tasty bees. This has led to yet another colloquial name of bee bird. This species of tanager leaves the U.S. in winter and migrates to Central and South American wintering grounds, and a fraction of the population is hardy and can overwinter in certain places like the mild south. In spring, summer tanagers head north, returning to much of the southern U.S. from southern California east to Missouri and continuing on into Maryland. To see a photo of a male summer tanager snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Okay, we are ready to jump into our guest, and I'm very excited to have in the studio Charlotte Henley, who is the registrar with the Ellen Trout Zoo in Lufkin, where she's been employed for 46 years. Yes, sir. That's impressive, Charlotte. So, Charlotte, welcome tonight. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I certainly appreciate the offer to come and visit. And, And it was great because you and I only live 20 minutes apart, so I went and picked you up, and we got to catch up in the in the we vehicle did. on the drive to Shreveport. So that's been fun to catch up with you. And uh, so, you know, in a minute, we're going to hopefully hear from folks that are uh, going to want to ask questions about zoos and zookeeping. And I have certainly a lot of questions for you. So I wanted to remind listeners that we are here Um, And the phone lines are open, and the the number to call is 1-800-552-8502. You can direct your question to me about birds or to Charlotte in a minute about zoos and zookeeping. So let's start off, Charlotte. Tell us a a little bit about yourself, you know, things like where you were born, where you've lived, where you went to school, family life, hobbies, and so forth. Okay, uh, to make it kind of short, I'm from originally from Oklahoma, and I got my degree in zoology from Oklahoma State University, and that is where I actually got introduced to the zoo business, zoo biology, and uh, did some original work at Oklahoma City Zoo, and then later on went to the Tulsa Zoo. All right. And then family life. You've got husband and kids, I Yeah, bet. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, this is odd, but I'm married to my boss, <laughs> and we still are married yeah. after all that time uh, working together. Uh, we have two children. My daughter is uh, the STEM coordinator for Lufkin Independent School District, and my son is the uh, reptile supervisor at Cameron Park in Waco. So it's in his blood, his genetics, his DNA to be a zoo zoo guy. Yes. That's cool. That's certainly true. That's neat. Um, Okay, and so you've been in Lufkin for quite a while. Um, So tell us about um, what got you started in animals and how old were you? Uh, I probably got most of my exposure and 
enjoyment, shall we say, working with animals. It, I lived on a Boy Scout camp on the Osage Indian Reservation. Hey. And we had uh, quite a few horses and mm-hmm. animals on there, and that's where I got interested in working with animals. Oh, neat. Um, so tell us a little bit about the Allen Trout Zoo in Lufkin and, and also include how zoos are, are are accredited and why this is important to the animals and the patrons. Yes. Okay. Ellen Trout Zoo uh, opened in 1967. It is a municipally operated zoo. We are accredited by the AZA. And we have approximately 1,000 animals on about 25 acres of property on the north side of town. Uh, We're open every day. We open at 9 and close at 5. About a quarter of our animal collection are animals that are listed on the endangered species list. And we have some special programs we can talk about later that uh, we use with those animals. And so um, that's some of what we have at the zoo. A thousand animals on 25 acres. That sounds like Noah's Ark. Well, uh, we have a number of reptiles, and they don't, thank goodness we don't have a thousand rhinos. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That kind of thing. (laughs) That would be. That's neat. So tell us how zoos have improved during your career. What have you seen big changes with? It's been immense, the changes. Uh, The accreditation program that you mentioned is an important uh, measure of how well a zoo operates, and that includes animal care, that includes financially, uh, conservation, education, and research. So those things are all parts of the accreditation process. And uh, you submit a proposal, uh, application, and it goes before a commission. They review it. They send a team of usually three people to the institution for an on-site visit, for, and they'll be there for several days looking at all parts of the zoo's operation and, and how it functions. And then uh, you go back and they, they talk about it and they vote whether they're going to accredit you or not. And we, when, we, when I started in the business, there was uh, one of the ways that zoos were still at that point, and this was towards the end of this, that particular time, zoos were still acquiring animals through animal brokers and that animals would be captured and brought into mm. into uh, the United States, and but we we don't do that anymore. We pretty much have a we have self sustaining populations of a lot of the animals, and there's no need to bother or uh, injure the the uh, wild populations of the animals. So you don't need to get a tiger in the field because they're breeding quite exactly. well in captivity. And That's, zoos trade trade around. Yeah. We have uh, special programs where called species survival plans. Mm-hmm. And these are targeted species that zoos are holding. Um, we have tigers actually were, was the very first one because there was a tiger stud book at the Lipsick Zoo in... Uh, Germany. Mm. And so we could go and uh, look up animals and find out, 
you know, who their parents were and grandparents were. And, and that helped us determine a good genetic background for the animals. And we still do that. We look at, we have, in the case of the birds, we have over 100 species survival programs for them. And at our zoo, we have, t- we have 10. Now we have, um, and we look at genetic backgrounds and pairings are made based on genetics. And then animals are transferred from facility to facility. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to a wild population, the animals in the zoo, all, all of the zoo are treated as a single population and not separate po- populations based on their physical, uh, where they are. Okay. And we were talking about that a little on the drive. I was fascinated with how do you transport some of these critters? They're dangerous or they're heavy or they're sensitive. And you were telling me about certain airlines that um, are, right. are read- readily available to help with that. Of course, at a fee. They're not doing it for free. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. The, there are some airlines, commercial uh, airlines, that will provide uh, cargo space for live animals. And there are others that will not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with them, and they have rules. And there are also federal rules about moving animals. And we are very cautious about how we move them. Uh, some animals, like we were talking about moving rhinos, you can actually train them like you crate train your dog, you oh, know, wow. when you go to the vet. Yeah. Uh, we, we've been able to crate train rhinos in the past to go into a crate uh, voluntarily to move the animal to another another facility. And 400 volunteers pick up that crate? Uh, <laughs> more like a front-end loader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, that, those are things that we can do. We Acclimating the animal to do uh, those behaviors that we need them to do so they're not stressed out or upset and really makes a big difference and it makes it a lot easier on the animal really neat you're listening to bird calls i'm cliff shackleford on the air with me is charlotte henley um, if you want to talk to us our phone number is 800-552-8502 we have christina on the line christina where are you calling from hi cliff hi charlotte i'm calling from Pollock. christina Texas. are you there yes i am can you hear me go ahead christina where are you calling from I'm calling from Pollock, Texas. Okay. So not far from the area. Yeah. What do you have for us tonight? Well, I had a couple of questions. One was about the gorilla enclosure. Charlotte, I know that that's in the works. Is there any timeline that you're aware of of when that will be complete? No, I don't have a timeline for that. Um, The gorilla exhibit was, we were in the process of fundraising during, uh, when uh, COVID came along and of course that kind of put the stops on that and we are in the process of trying to get that back on track. Gotcha. And that can't be an easy species to keep in captivity, right? I mean... Yeah, no, gorillas are are great animals and they they require social interactions and physical... uh, requirements that are kind of above and beyond a lot of other species and so if we want to do a species like gorillas we want to make sure that they have exactly what they Mm -hmm. need Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Christina, you had some other questions? Yeah, okay. there are a lot of peafowl at the Ellen Trout Zoo, for those that don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what do you guys do when your population gets out of control, or, or do you ever get to that point? Well, we have we are very careful about that. There's a couple of things you can do. Uh, one is we have actually sold some of those to people who are, uh, you know, bird fanciers and and would like to have them. Uh, we can also uh, neuter them, actually, mm. and so there are there are methods out there to you deal got, with that. You've got lions to feed. How about that? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We we wouldn't feed anything. Tastes out. like chicken. <laughs> right, right. My last question sure. was about the um, the hippo that started everything. Yes, ma'am. What can you tell us any more than what we can get from the sign at the zoo? Oh, okay. Well, uh, actually, when they were planning the zoo, that was headed up by a man named Walter Trout, who ran Lufkin Industries or. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he told one of his friends he that their Rotary Club was going to build a zoo, and he's his friend said, "Oh, okay, I'll I'll see about getting an animal and donating it." And um, the gentleman was uh, Mr. Wentworth, and he was in Philadelphia actually. And his daughter was doing some work at the Dallas Zoo, and they had a hippo born there, and so he made arrangements to purchase that animal, and. Uh, so it was a surprise for Mr. Trout for Christmas in mm-hmm. 1965. Oh, okay. And you, you, can't, you can't go on eBay and buy a hippo right now. No, <laughs> I hope not. I hope that not. makes so much more sense because when I thought about someone gifting somebody a hippopotamus, mm. I was like, wow, that's out there. Um, but since he wanted to start a zoo, that's really awesome. I think that's great. It was. It was kind of funny because they didn't have a hippo pool as part of the plan and so they ended up having to transfer it uh to the louisiana purchase zoo here in louisiana in monroe for uh about a year and a half while they actually built that part of the zoo and there are funny letters in the in the uh files about oh it's getting bigger you need to send more money for food <laughs> oh my gosh and when yeah, you say, well you guys crate train them and when you say pool you mean a pond the, the, the water source the, the, or? The, yeah the the old hippo pool is right at the yeah. old entrance of the zoo right. and it has um black neck swans in it yeah. now and it slopes so he could walk in and yes up and down yes okay. so uh-huh. that's what you mean by pool so that was a lot of work to to build that they had to build that i think mm-hmm. um the uh, Lufkin Industries actually built mm-hmm. that, and uh, but then when he passed, of course we didn't want to put a hippo back in that small space, yeah. and so we were able to fundraise for uh, the hippo aquarium where you can watch them swim underwater. Neat, that is neat. Christina, how about it? You got anything else for Miss Charlotte? I think I'm going to free up the lines for somebody else, but thank you both so much for your time. Great. Thank you, thank Christina. You. Those were good questions. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye now. Yeah, I like the questions about the history. That's really cool. Yeah. That, that stuff can't be forgotten. Um, what was that hippo's name? It was Hippie. Hippie. <laughs> yeah. That's original. Real original. <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember that when it died maybe, what, in the late 80s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think. I I'd have of, to go back and look at the... Yeah. But, Are hippos yeah. pretty long-lived? 
Um, they should live into their uh, mid-20s to 30s. Uh, his dad actually lived to be almost 50, but that was very extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe hippos should go on a diet. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Bird Calls. This is Cliff Shackleford and Charlotte Henley. The phone number here is 800-552-8502. If you have questions about birds or zoos or anything in between, please call us, 800-552-8502. Until then, I have lots of questions for you, Charlotte. So we talked about gorillas as being challenging to keep in zoos. What else, especially... Uh, other mammals, but also birds. What are challenging to keep in zoos? What are really tough? Well, some of them, uh, of course, dietary requirements always come into play. Uh, there are zoo dietitians who mm-hmm. whose job is to study the wild diet of the animal and see how close we can replicate it in a zoo setting. That you also have the uh, social issues. Uh, mm-hmm. Some birds are. Are, are social and others not so much and so you need to make sure that you've got the right uh dynamics of the social structure a good example would be our flamingos you mm. flamingo uh, flocks need to be at a population of right around 50 to have successful reproduction so they're big partiers they have to be in a big mm-hmm. party setting a have, big flock have to have that interaction yeah. cool what about woodpeckers that can't be easy to keep those are those are more difficult and in fact you just don't see a lot of yeah. them in in zoos yeah. because of that because of their drumming and, and chiseling behavior yes. so on the opposite end what are some easy animals to keep in zoos well i think some of the easier ones um would be like some of the tortoises and mm-hmm. things like that uh we were laughing about the um, the cockroaches, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Madagascar co- hissing Mad- cockroaches. Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Yeah. Those can be kind of fun, um, but there there's a variety of things out there. We we've been very successful with some of ours, our uh, like our birds were the spectacled owls, which are is a South American bird. Uh, originally, we had snowy owls at the zoo. And oh, wow. they did not do well because of the heat, and they mm-hmm. would try to try to nest on the ground, and uh, it was not a successful situation because of the habitat. It was too too warm, and so we traded them out for a South American bird, and we've done really great with that. We've sent them to other zoos, including the Belize Zoo in Central America. Oh, where they're native. And you were telling mm-hmm. me, how old was one of the spectacle owls you had? One of them's about 30. Wow, that's amazing. And, and we're members of the zoo, my family and I, mm-hmm. and, and we uh, also adopt, which is something to think about, joining your local zoo and, and even going beyond that and adopting a critter. And we we adopted the spectacle owls years yes, ago, so you sure did. I just found out just today that this one is thirty years old. So mm-hmm. one of our pretty, parents. That's pretty cool. So very neat. You're listening to Bird Calls one eight hundred five five two eight five zero two. We have Joey from Grapeland. Hello, Joey. Is this Joey from Grapeland? This is Jack Johnson. Oh, this is Jack in Jacksonville. Yeah, this is Jackie Jackson. Okay, we got two two folks on the on the line that we're trying to get all the wires 
not crossing, so sorry about that. So Jack from Jacksonville, what do you have for us tonight? Well, I just have a general observation. I just want to know if it's a common observation. It's like a symbiotic relationship between birds and cars. Uh, when you park in a parking lot, like Walmart or Family Dollar or whatever, I've been noticing those small sparrows picking uh, butterflies and, uh, you know, bees and everything that's stuck to the grill of the yeah. car, and they're taking them off. I don't know if it's a common observation, but I couldn't help but notice. Yeah, they they figured that out. Um, you'll see grackles, um, those big black birds in the parking lots doing the same thing. The females are chocolate brown, milk chocolate brown. Those are great tail grackles. They'll pick stuff off your grill. I've been to places in the Great Plains on the um, west end of the Great Plains and, and you'll you'll drive into parking lots and black-billed magpies will do the same thing. So I think all over the world there's birds that have figured out and, and, and also you'll go to like 7-Elevens and, and other stores that have mercury vapor lights on all night and the June bugs get full you know they get they go there at night and then in the first light the sparrows and other birds uh hit those front lobbies or not the front lobbies but the front entrance of of these stores that have lights so same thing it's it's all about the food and they're attracted to the bugs whether they're squished in the grill or hanging out in front of the 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 five and dime store so but that's neat that you saw that jack uh you got anything else for us tonight we lost Jack. All right. Jack from Jacksonville. Uh, thanks for the call. Um, let's see. Do, can we find Joey from Grapeland? I'm, there. I'm Joey. Okay, there's Joey. All right, Joey. Old Joey. Sorry about Joey that. Gordon. Yeah. No All right, I know where Grapeland is. Um, yeah. So, uh, Joey, what's your question tonight, sir? Well, I was just going to make a comment. It just uh, really hit me and, and just had a little sentimental it ain't going on whenever y'all start talking about hippie the hippo because I'm 63 mm. and growing up in the Lufkin area, my my grandmother uh, was an outdoor person and uh, we she lived over in the you, if you know where Kelties is, uh, that's where we grew up or where she grew where she was and she would take her grandkids, which included me and about four or five others, to to the zoo when it opened back in. 60, you know, 65 or so, and I remember 67. Hippie the Hippo. Yeah. Is it 67? Yes, sir. And um, anyway, it it was just uh, amazing to some little kids from East Texas to see some kind of animal like that, because all we knew about was squirrels and yeah. deer and, <laughs> and things such as that. But uh, we we were very educated in with animals, and my grandmother made sure of that. And uh, it was just uh, it's just good to hear uh, those stories from from uh, from old. And I'm sure there are a lot of people from in my age bracket that we thought hippie the hippo was something. Huh. That's cool. And uh, yes, anyway, it was really fun. And I remember the pond that you're talking about, and how he cut. He kind of got pretty big for that little pond, but he would swim around in it and then uh, run back up into his little barn and eat some hay or whatever. Right. And uh, anyway, it was really fun to, to grow up in that that area. I was probably anywhere from nine to twelve, something like that, at that time, and it was just really pretty cool. That's neat. And yeah, hey, grandmas are still doing that today. That, they are. That's a, they that's are. a great thing grandmas can do, and especially in the summer if they've got the kids. So Charlotte, tell yep. us about visitation. We, oh yeah, uh, you, 
uh, of course, one of the most convenient things is the Friends of the Zoo organization that is you can get by a membership, like you said, you have for mm-hmm. your family, and then you can come as many times as you want. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can go to other zoos you around can. the country. Uh, we have reciprocity agreements with other zoos. Now, not every zoo, no. because it's th- it's their decision whether right. they're going to participate in that program. Uh, some will give, maybe if they don't have reciprocity, you might get a discount. Uh, for parking or something yeah. else like that, but those are all good things. And we have a very successful education program that we started way back. And we have um, our zoo safari program for elementary age students, and they come and spend half a day doing arts and crafts and behind-the-scenes tours and animal encounters. And we have a program for junior high or middle school students uh, called Junior Zookeeper where they actually work with the keeper staff. And that's a, that program has a lot of competition because we only take a certain number of students and they have to write an essay about why they want to participate in the program mm-hmm. and also have, go through an interview process. Yeah. So thanks for the call, Joey. That It's good he got a, a, he got sentimental about hippie. But, that's, yeah. that's good. I mean, that, he, he made a big... A big impression on a lot of people. Yeah, that's really good to hear. So thanks yes, for that is. call, Joey. Uh, you're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. If you'd like to ask a question to our guest, Charlotte Henley, with the Ellen Trout Zoo in Lufkin, or if you have a general bird question for me, pick up the phone and call 1-800-552-8502. Uh, Charlotte, so states have laws against private citizens owning certain species, are, are there similar federal laws, too, and what are some examples of what's illegal to own and why they're illegal to keep on private property? Well, one of the biggest ones that just happened recently um, at the end of December when Congress voted and uh, the um, Big Cat Public Safety Act, and this was uh, the re- this has to do with keeping big cats like lions and tigers and jaguars uh, and using them for certain kinds of opportunities shall we say of to go to the mall and get your picture taken with it and and uh, things like that and because of some of the scary things that have happened with mm-hmm. those animals um, they were they were bred at, to be used as cubs and things like that and then once they got too big to be safely handled there were some not so nice things that happened to mm-hmm. a lot of those animals and so now we ha- we have a federal uh, law about that um, of course there's some other things uh, on the federal level uh, migratory birds of course is a big one mm-hmm. um, birds of prey and things like that those are uh, And songbirds are all protected Mm -hmm. by the Federal uh, Migratory Bird Act. And, um, of course, certain endangered animals under the endangered species list, or if it's an animal from another country, it may be covered under the Convention in Trade of Endangered Species, or CITES. Mm -hmm. And so those are all um, those higher levels. Now, Texas... uh, 
I can't speak for Louisiana, but I know Texas has a certain species that they uh, protect as well. Uh, you think about the canebrake rattlesnake, the horn lizard, uh, alligator snapping turtles. Mm-hmm. And those are all animals that Texas does protect in, in one fashion or another. Right. And so you can't just go out and pick things up and take it home. Yeah. That includes the deer. You know, this is the time of year when, oh, yeah. when uh, we have fawns that are hitting the ground. A lot of people, if they come across a fawn, they don't realize that the mom puts them there, mm-hmm. puts them in a place where they're safe, and uh, that she don't does not always stay right there with them. And so, don't confuse thinking that it's been orphaned just because mom's not standing yeah. right there she's off in the tree line watching you waiting for you to yeah. leave and she's so. probably trying to lure you away and trying to and, get and boom you you discovered the the bat cave where she's hiding the little baby so yeah that's a good message right now because like you said the white-tailed deer are having young right now and and don't pick them up just leave them alone just leave walk, them there walk away if you've got a dog Leash the dog, get the dog out of there, and right. just let nature happen. That's right. So speaking of orphaned animals or injured animals, uh, are they brought to your zoo, and do you have resources for accepting and helping these wild animals? If not, what do you recommend people do uh, with wild animals in need of assistance? And remember, we just said this doesn't include baby deer. So yeah. maybe a broken wing on a bird or something like that. What What do you recommend? Well, really, the zoo is not set up to be a rehabilitation facility for injured animals. Uh, the state of Texas has a licensing process in place where uh, people who are interested in helping animals like that can become licensed rehabilitators. And uh, if you find an injured animal like that, I would suggest you go in the Texas case, and Louisiana may be the same, uh, on the, their website under wildlife, there is a, a, a tab for rehabilitators. And there will be a list of people who are licensed to take care of those animals. They've had special training. And uh, for the Texas uh, rehabilitators, they are listed by county. So you can look for a county close to you, mm-hmm. and there will be a contact name, a telephone number, or an email address, and what kinds of animals that person is licensed to handle. Yeah, because you're, you're pretty full with 1,000 animals right. in 25 acres. You, you, your plate is full. So Our plate is full. So taking orphan stuff is not an option. And this is the time of the year. And we're getting even closer to the time of year where baby birds fall out of the nest for a variety of reasons, especially blue jays, morning doves, and others. Um, But the mom is, like the white-tailed deer, the mom is still taking care of it. Bring the kids in, bring the pets in, and and leave them alone because, you know, once you remove them, it's hard to keep the wild in in a species or an individual that you grab and take. And you you might find that the nearest rehabilitator is a two or three hour drive from you, yeah. depending on where you are. There's not a whole lot of rehabilitators. They're they're really glued to urban centers where there's lots of people, um, but rural areas don't have a lot of licensed rehabbers. Unfortunately, unfortunately, right. 
Um, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackle for your host. I'm very excited to have our in-studio guest, Charlotte Henley, with the Ellen Trout Zoo. If you have questions for either of us, the phone number here is 800-552-8502. So, Charlotte, what happens when a private citizen wants to surrender an animal like a macaw, a long-lived bird like a parrot, that could be potentially placed on exhibit? Should the public know if zoos are or not there to accept pets that are that they can no longer care for? Most of the time, zoos will not accept uh, pets. Mm-hmm. Um, those animals, a lot of times, have been imprinted. They... Uh, I kind of have to laugh because the you know you mentioned parrots and they are long live birds and it, there are times when they outlive the person yeah. that acquired acquired the bird and then a member of the family ends up with it and maybe they're not interested in it and uh I know we've had a couple of times when people offered us birds and their vocabulary was oh. such that it wouldn't be appropriate oh. <laughs> for him to be out on exhibit where yeah. other our visitors, our zoo visitors, might hear them say things. So you mentioned zoo education. That wouldn't be a good education piece for little kids to learn no, certain words. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But that's something to consider if you're... Thinking you're going to get a parrot or macaw, something like that, and you think, well, I live near a zoo, and when I don't want any more, I'll just give to the zoo. Don't don't consider that I would an not, equation. Yeah. That's I, right. I would not consider that. Yeah, and like you, you made a really good point. You, you might hand it down to your kids, but the kids might not like the parrot, and more importantly, the parrot might miss you and not right. like the new owner. So, yeah, that's a reason to maybe stick to something shorter-lived like a, a budgie, uh, what we right. call a parakeet or a cockatiel, but not these these larger parrots. So, the, yeah, interesting. The housing for them too is uh, a challenge at times yeah. because they they're so ad- adapted to use their beak and uh, their tongue to help. They can actually unscrew uh, nuts and bolts on the cage. to get out. Yeah, that's right. So something to think about. So Charlotte, tell us about. Uh, your species survival program do you mention that already and and another program called safe the acronym safe that zoos have initiated and and participate to benefit species in the wild please tell us about that okay uh species survival plans this these have been around for a long time uh, and these are programs for um handling the uh the reproduction of, of certain species in zoos and keeping the genetics uh, diversity on a high level. Uh, sometimes, uh, like I, I believe on rhinos that we're working with, they want 90% uh, heterozygosity levels to stay for 100 years. And so um, there's there's a lot of genetics and uh, that go into putting those programs together to make sure that the animals are are as diversely related to one another as we can possibly have. Um, that is what's referred to as an uh, ex situ program because it's not in nature. It's in a human care. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the plate, more recently, they have developed another program, uh, an in situ program, which means 
back in nature uh, programs for animals that are endangered or threatened in the wild. And these programs are actually uh, programs that are happening for the wild population of the animal. And we are part of one for the Andean flamingos. Mm. And um, we have a a safe program for them along with several other zoos and an organization that I'm on their board uh, zoo conservation outreach group and uh, we have at least 10 birds that have been fitted with transponders and they give out a signal and those signals are relayed through satellite system and we generate maps as to where the birds are nesting they're feeding how fast they're flying and what areas they're moving through and in conjunction with the chile government they also uh, are letting them know where these birds are going to try to help protect those water systems uh ligna i mean uh, lithium lithium mining in those areas and gold mining Mm -hmm. have caused water issues for those birds Mm-hmm. And so um, we're trying to help them with those situations so that we can identify those critical water sources that need to be yeah. protected. Yeah, we like our lithium for our car batteries and we our do. cell phones, but it, we don't really understand what it takes to get it and what's impacted by extracting that from the ground. Exactly. So this we, is a good example. We hope. We hope that someday that they'll be able to recycle lithium mm. and kind of take some of that pressure off. Yeah. Interesting. So so we mentioned already about um, ways people can adopt an animal. We mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some other ways that people can donate funds to zoos in general, yours in particular, but zoos in general, because... We've got listeners all over the place, and, and they might have a different local zoo. So yes. what what do you recommend they do when they go visit the zoo to get involved? Well, I would uh, – one of the methods that a lot of zoos utilize are uh, their support organizations. As a, sometimes it's called a zoological society, or they're friends of the – like Ellen Trout Zoo for us. And uh, down at Alexandria, they have friends of the Alexandria Zoo as well. And uh, they have different avenues that you can help participate. You, of course, donation of money, but maybe also volunteering your time or uh, mm. participating in special events that help raise oh, money yeah. for your facility. Um, so, you know, they have we we have Zoo Brew. We've done that. That's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And people come out and. Uh, get to sample different types of beer and and yeah. and we have food too mm-hmm. and uh so and be at be in the zoo at night is really yeah. kind of cool that is cool that is really cool um okay we have a question that was emailed to us and and i'll let you field this one it says is it legal to just set a macaw free into the wild since it's not acceptable as a gift to the zoo so that's a good follow-up question if if you if you pat if you can't keep that macaw anymore um can you just let it go and and i think that's the that's a terrible idea for it's something a horrible idea it's, it's imprinted to humans expecting food right um and then all of a sudden it's it's let go in into your area they have they have no um 
experiences, to yeah. know where to look for food, to look for shelter, what other animals to avoid. Uh, so I know that's a terrible idea. Now, there are people who have sanctuaries, and you could probably do a little research yeah. online and find people who do that. And there are people, um, I don't know, in some cases you might have a bird breeder or something that might, might be interested mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. So there are other avenues besides right. letting it go. But lots to consider when when going into the field of having a, a parrot or a macaw or something long, or a cockatoo yeah. long lived. So exactly. interesting to think about. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. I've got Charlotte Henley in the house here, at, and we're at 800-552-8502. Here's a question I, I really uh, want to hear about an answer, and it's uh, which species in your zoo gets the longest views by patrons who are smiling? Uh-huh. They, they really oh. like what they're looking at. There, uh, There's a couple that I see our visitors really enjoy uh, the peafowl that wow. christine offered yeah. uh brought up uh that they seem to be fascinated by them because they're out moving around and uh-huh. they get to see them displaying in the bright colors and everything um in the bird bird world uh the eagles they're fascinated by the eagles the bald eagles and uh yeah. they they will uh, stand there and look at them and talk about how big they are and mm. they talk about they uh talk about oh they're not really bald and and oh, cool. then they read read the signs and um so that's one those are are two and then i think it, the big cats are fascinating for a lot of people, oh, yeah. and the otters are very active. Oh, they're, they're and the, playful. And the hippos, yeah. if, if they're out playing around, they, they like to sleep a lot, too. That, that's interesting you mentioned the otters, because when my kids were little, you know, three and five, six, seven, somewhere in that range, they would stand there for the, the longest time watching the otters because they're just so playful, active, moving around, jumping in the right. water. having fun. It, yeah, having fun. The kids, they look like they wanted to get in there and have fun with them. Right. Like it was a party <laughs> pool. So <laughs> that's cute. So uh, let's talk about the opposite. In other words, where are patrons looking and not smiling when they're looking at certain species? They're kind of yucked out and maybe yiked out and ooh yeah. and ah and yucky. I think, I think probably... Snakes, of course, seems to come to yeah. mind a lot of times. And we do have a large reptile collection. And um, we have some that are native snakes, and we have some exotics as well. And I don't know, maybe some of the crocodile crocodiles or crocodilians may, they go, ooh, that's kind of scary, you know. Yeah, they they hopefully learn that that's not something you want to get close to. Right. So, and and I think a lot of people see alligators and laying over there, and they think it looks like a cement piece or it's approachable. Right. And, and boy, that's not the case. If you ever see an alligator jump and grab move, something. they're they're very quick. So, yeah, interesting. So, how about you? What what you're working in the zoo all the time? What what do you have to stop and look at because you just think it's the coolest thing and you never get tired of it? I think, uh, well, p- 
personally, I really like raccoons. Oh. <laughs> and um, I'm fascinated by how smart they are and yeah. and their physical abilities are, are fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the hippos. Yeah. And one that we had in the past that we don't have right now that uh, I really enjoyed, and that was our timber wolves. Oh. And I'm not neat. a dog person. But I'll, uh, the timber wolves were very fascinating yeah. animals. Yeah, neat, very cool. And and then in the same, what what do you what do you walk past that you you don't really want to look at? You're like, oh no, it's that guy again. Mm. May, maybe because it bit you or or it's aggressive <laughs> towards you. <laughs> do, do you have anybody in the uh, zoo you just don't like? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say there's anybody like that. Anybody meaning there, a zoo now, animal. Now we do have one we do have one bird that makes a call that is very loud oh. and sounds like a little dog yapping and I go, mm, you know. Not for you. Uh yeah. What? Just keep walking. <laughs> are we are we going to keep that anonymous who who that bird is or are we going to going to tell us? Uh, it's a Sariyama. Okay. You, we actually breed breed those, and so that's part of the breeding, you know, the calling, and uh, that those behaviors are are important for that bird for yeah. that reason. Yeah. So you go, okay, well, if that gets us a a new baby, we'll right go go for it. <laughs> you know. Well, and some listeners aren't going to know what a Sariyama is and and, no. and you have anything to tell them what it looks like and what it is? Well, we have a, a red-legged Sariyamas and it looks for most people they might compare it to a crane. Mm. And um they have a little bit of a crest thing going, but and they're more of a pampas grassland, yes. open grassland and so that vocalizations to cover long distances in the, in the grasslands so certainly yeah so it's maybe not his fault oh no it's not it's not but its I, fault I, I, I hear what you're saying there's there's definitely even in wild birds in my backyard there's a couple of them i just don't i don't like to hear i just <laughs> for various reasons and we won't go there this is bird yeah. calls i'm cliff shackleford i've got charlotte henley we just have two minutes left the number here cool. is 800-552-8502 I hear the phone ringing, and they better be quick, otherwise ain't going to happen. <laughs> but it goes by quick in here, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yeah. It's time flies. So let's talk a, real quick about escapees. So how often do birds that can fly escape from zoos, and what happens to them? There's a famous flamingo born in Africa, nicknamed Pink Floyd, that escaped from the Wichita Zoo in Kansas around 2005 that bird watchers along the Texas coast have seen. So that's... That's an interesting story, Wichita, Kansas, and and then on the Texas coast. But right. how how often does that happen? Does it that... it doesn't happen very okay. often. That's that's a pretty unique situation there. Um, the birds, uh, we just we just we're more careful with them. You know, you never know. Now there are situations that you can have a birds get out, um, and hurricanes comes to mind. Right. You know, if if you don't have them in a in a facility in a building or something where they're safe, and there's a chance that you know a tree could go down on an aviary, and you, you would have birds out. And and in those cases, usually you can lure them back with food. Mm-hmm. You go out and put their favorite food out, and then you can they'll come to the 
come to the right. food because that's what they're habituated. It works to. on me too. <laughs> if I get loose, my wife just rings the dinner bell and boom, I'm back home. You're, you're home, huh? But, that but works. you guys are you guys probably get very concerned when hurricanes are yeah predicted or you know expected, and so you guys have to really be careful because of uh, exhibits opening the, up. Yeah, this. Snowmageddon, I think, was worse uh, because we had so much tree damage from the ice. And we actually moved our flamingo flocks into our public restrooms to protect them from that cold weather. I've never gone to the bathroom next to a flamingo. I don't know what that's (laughs) like. I think I'd have stage fright. (laughs) So, okay. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte. Oh, you're welcome. This has been a lot of fun. Um, So we're going to end with my conservation tip. And we have a few callers on deck, and I'm sorry we've run out of time. So my conservation tip is titled, How to Find a Wildlife Biologist in Your Area. In October 2020, our conservation tip discussed the importance of finding your nearest game warden and keeping their number handy for that future wildlife emergency when you're scrambling to reach out for help. This month's tip focuses on finding a wildlife biologist in your area. If you own rural acreage, a wildlife biologist can assist you with land management options that could help the plants and animals on your property. They might also put you they might also put you in touch with a nearby wildlife association so you can meet like-minded landowners. If you're in a big city like Dallas or Houston, urban biologists may able to may be able to answer your questions about city wildlife. Whatever your question, a local biologist can be a valuable resource. To get started with your quest, open up your favorite search engine on your device and type in your state's fish and game agency. For example, in Texas, type in TPWD Find a Wildlife Biologist. When you click on that for Texas, it will take you to a clickable regional map and then a clickable county map for where you might live or own land. Other ideas for finding a wildlife biologist could be to contact your nearest university, junior college, or high school in hopes of finding someone knowledgeable when you need the assistance of a local expert. Seek out and consult the experts in wildlife biology. Do it for the birds. So that concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our guest, Charlotte Henley with the Ellen Trout Zoo in Lufkin. Thanks for joining us, Charlotte. Thank you. I had a great time. Great. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation in North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a summer tanger call note was recorded by Russ Y., and the song was recorded by Paul Marvin, and both can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the tanager on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, July 11th. And remember... Do it for the birds.